Hey, this is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. Welcome, everyone. Anybody here for the first time tonight? Welcome, welcome. Welcome to anybody tuning in on Zoom for the first time tonight. I'm here in the midst of a series of um, talking about the Buddha's life, the uh, story of how Siddhartha Gautama decided that uh, it was probably possible to end suffering. And um, his search, his struggle, his experience, the last few weeks we've talked about uh, why he went on his quest and what happened and, um, and how he attained enlightenment and what enlightenment means and how it's applicable to us and what's the possibility for freedom in our own lives. Uh, And that's the core message of the Buddha is, uh, I have done this and it can be done. Um, And this isn't magic or mysticism or unattainable uh, spiritual um, make-believe or myth, but that there's actually a, a human ability to see clearly and respond in a way to what's happening that we don't suffer about it. And and tonight we're gonna get into um, how he formulated that into a method, into a practical applicable path methodology called the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. Uh, in the first teaching that he gave and that he continued to give throughout his life. And I might do an overview tonight of the whole path, but then the coming weeks, I'll take each section um, of the path and say, and we'll, we'll just talk about the first noble truth, and then we'll just talk about the second noble truth, and then we'll just do the third, fourth, all factors in the eightfold path. So for the next at least 12 weeks, but probably longer than that every monday night we'll systematically go through this uh, original core teaching from the buddha of how we can apply that to our lives to end suffering i like to start class uh, by asking encouraging you to connect with each other One of the core things about Against the Stream, my mission in having this meditation center, and I've been teaching this Monday night class for close to 17 years now, every Monday West Side uh, class, with the intention not just to educate people about Buddhism or have a place for us to meditate, but for you to meet each other. Uh, I find that I feel like a big part of my job as a meditation teacher, as a Dharma teacher, is to facilitate community. Um, not just to, you know, because so often you can come to something like this and you meditate and you listen to the talk and you never really connect with each other. It's a problem in meditating. It's hard to meet each other. 
<laughs> while you're meditating. But it's a core part of my mission against the stream's mission to help facilitate us getting to know each other. And it's one of the, the, uh, the three refuges in Buddhism. There's refuge in awakening, refuge in the, the truth, the Dharma, and refuge in community. And that we need each other, that all of this is a relational path, that it's about how do we not only relate to our own minds, but how do we relate to each other? How do we speak? How do we listen? How do we uh, deal with conflict? I, I always feel like uh, my experience of Buddhists is that we're terrible at conflict. We're conflict avoidant a lot of the time and kind of pretending like we're spiritual and not really kind of uh, dealing with conflict. And I, my hope is that Against the Stream is a place where you'll make friends and they'll piss you off and you'll tell them about it. And you'll forgive them and you'll have compassion for them and they'll, they'll bug you and they'll tell you about it and have like real relationships where we practice right speech and, and right listening. And we do all of these methods, Buddhist teachings, but, um, but not in a fake, like pretending like you're never annoyed. I was, I was listening to this uh, relationship thing uh, a while ago, a couple of years ago. Um, and and one, one of the things that stood out for me is this relationship guru was saying, you know, the bottom line is in relationship, and he's talking about intimate relationship, but this applies to all friendships, all family, all, he was talking about um, how often we expect that we're going to be in a relationship where uh, we're, we're like, if we're annoyed by the other person, there's something wrong. And he said, let's just all land in the truth that everyone is annoying. Everyone. If you're in a relationship with somebody, a friendship, a casual acquaintance, an intimate relationship, you will at times be annoyed by them. If you're in a spiritual community, you will be annoyed by each other at times. And that just, that's the foundation. That's the reality rather than this, um, fantasy that like we're all going to just be so well behaved all of the time and so enlightened that we don't ever annoy each other um rather just say, coming with the expectation of like yeah here's a good place to practice being annoyed and being annoying and and accepting each other and forgiving each other rather than judging and shunning and whatever we often do all of that to be said, I'd like to start by asking you to introduce yourselves, to start to get to know each other and build some community here. And uh, at home, it's harder because you're at home and you're not in the room together. So at home, I put you into breakout rooms on Zoom and about three quarters of you take me up on the encouragement. And there's a handful of you that are like, fuck that, I'm not talking to strangers. And I don't have to because I, I just don't have to push the button and then I don't have to talk to anybody. <laughs> Um, in here, it's a little harder to avoid because people are just going to talk to you in the room and annoy you. Um, so you can just introduce yourself, maybe say something about like, I'm going to talk about the Four Noble Truths. How long have you been thinking about studying? How long ago did you hear about the Four Noble Truths? There's probably somebody here tonight, some people here tonight, they're like, first time I heard about it. I don't know what the fuck the Four Noble Truths are. And we've all been there. I, you know, there was a time where I was like, I don't, what are the four noble truths? What the fuck is that? 
And so everybody, you know, and, and some of you are like, oh, no, I've been thinking about that for the last few years. I've been doing refuge recovery or I've been coming to Against the Stream or I read, you know, some book by Thich Nhat Hanh or the Dalai Lama or maybe my book or somebody's book. And so you've been thinking about it for a while. How long have you been thinking about and trying to practice the Four Noble Truths? And if it's if you're brand new, of course, you're brand new and you're welcome here. And um, so find somebody you don't know and introduce yourself and what's your relationship to the Four Noble Truths and for how long? And at home, I'll throw you into breakout groups before we get into the teachings, the Buddha's story of uh, finding his old companions and, and breaking it down, how to, how to experience what he experienced. First, we'll meditate. A core part of the Buddha's teachings, the Eightfold Path, is mindfulness meditation, the second, seventh factor of the Eightfold Path. So we'll practice some mindfulness. And mindfulness works best if you uh, are friendly towards what arises in your awareness. So not a mindfulness that is a detached observation, um, but a friendly embodying of what's happening physically, emotionally, and uh, mentally. Trying to be friendly towards whatever you're experiencing. And there's nothing... Uh, mindfulness is inclusive of our whole experience. So there's no such thing as a bad meditation. Mm -hmm. There's also no such thing as a good meditation on that level of kind of, and even just watching our judgment of like, well, when it's pleasant, I think it's a good meditation. And when it's unpleasant, I think it's bad. Or when my mind is quiet, I think it's good. And when my mind is loud and Chaotic, I think it's bad, but mindfulness has no judgment. The, the definition of mindfulness is non-judgmental present time awareness. So we're just aware of whatever's happening right now. And if we're lost in the future planning, fantasizing, then we're not here. The, the, those thoughts are happening now, but when you're really in, in, um, involved in the contents of your thoughts, you're no longer mindful of the present, you're in the future your awareness has traveled or you're in the past and some resentment, argument, reminiscing. And so, so much of our practice is just bring your attention back to the present time experience and the body is the anchor. Here now, sitting, breathing. If you are breathing in and you know you're breathing in, you are mindful of the breath. If you're sitting and you know that you're sitting, you're mindful of here, sitting, feels like this, even if it's painful. My ass hurts, my knees ache, my shoulders are tight, but I'm mindful of tightness, aching, and pain. <laughs> and that's a perfect meditation, mindfulness of soreness, aching, and pain, rather than some idea that meditation is supposed to be blissful. Not Buddhist meditation. Buddhist meditation is about what's true. What's the truth of this present time experience? And if it's painful, that's the truth of it. Sometimes your experience is going to be very pleasant. The more you meditate, the more you might have uh, experiences where it's like, ah, oh, that was amazingly pleasurable. Um, and then you're mindful of that. Anyways, I'll get more into it. But first we'll meditate, practicing these four foundations. I'll give some instructions. Um, so find a way to sit that's upright, but also relax. Don't take a posture that's too rigid or too stiff, just an upright, relaxed posture. 
And when you're ready, allow your eyes to be closed. If you care to take a couple of deep breaths and let them out, releasing any tension as you exhale, softening the brow, the jaw, the shoulders. Soften your belly. If there's any tightness in your abdomen, let it go. Let go of that tension. Becoming open and receptive to our own attention, our own present time, non-judgmental awareness, not resisting, avoiding, Bringing mindfulness to the sensations that the breath creates. Breathing in, receive the breath, feel it. Know that you're breathing in, breathing out. With full awareness, clear comprehension, I'm breathing out, exhaling. Bringing this attitude of self-acceptance and friendliness. Kindness towards your body, your heart, your mind. As much as you can in this moment. Take a few minutes to just settle the breath, the attention on the breath. Each time the breath comes in, perhaps noting in, feeling the sensations at the nostrils. Each time you exhale, knowing, noting, breathing out. Let everything else be in the background, thoughts, other sounds, sensations. giving our full attention to the breath, but in a relaxed and accepting way.
What are you aware of right now? Where's your attention? Is it in the past, the future, or the present? Is the breath coming or going? As you return over and over to the present time experience of sitting, still breathing, remember the friendliness. Gently returning. Developing a loving and kind relationship to your own wandering mind. If you're pretty new to this kind of practice, the breath can continue to be the anchor object. Keep coming back to the breath. But the Buddha's encouragement was to become more inclusive, mindful of your whole body. This body made of the four elements, earth, air, water, heat. This body with all of the components, the parts, skin and bones, organs and muscles. I'm aware that this body breathes all by itself. The heart beats all by itself. The ears hear, the eyes see. The nose smells, the tongue tastes. Awareness receives, knows. 
what's being seen or heard or felt. And as you include your mind, rather than ignoring it, opening to the mind, observing it, remember that it's the mind's job to think. It thinks all by itself. Plans and remembers and worries and judges. Becoming mindful, aware of what's happening in the mind. Is it remembering or planning, craving, or anxious, afraid, worried? Or perhaps there's some happiness or joy present in the mind, in the heart and the body. To whatever extent you can, begin to investigate what's happening right now. What am I aware of? And how does it feel? What's the feeling tone of pleasant or unpleasant, or perhaps neutral, whether it's a sound or a thought, a sensation. Does that sound feel pleasant or unpleasant? Does that thought feel pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? Investigate the second foundation of mindfulness, the feeling tone. What's happening and how does it feel? Over and over, returning to the present time experience and the heart, the mind, the body, with this interest in what's being, what's arising, what's being experienced, what the feeling tone of that sensation or sound or Smell or taste, image, thought. 
turning towards our pain rather than away from it.
Buddha said his awakening consisted of being able to meet all of the pain with friendliness, with care, with compassion, physical, emotional, both internal and external. Meeting all of the pleasure with non-attached appreciation, the impermanent arising and passing of pleasure, and the craving for more pleasure as impersonal, not being identified or attached to pleasure. Being at peace in the midst of both joy and sorrow. He said he came to understand that the mind, the body is not a permanent self, not worth being identified with as I or me or mine. As you look into your own heart and mind, just imagine how much relief there would be if you could meet all of it with compassion, non-attachment. If you truly understood that it wasn't so personal, our self-centered tendencies, not your fault. Bringing loving kindness with the simple phrases, may I learn to be happy just as I am in this mind, body. May I learn to be at ease. in the midst of the reality, both internal and external, whether pleasant or unpleasant. May I be free from suffering, the unnecessary levels of self-created attachment, aversion, self-centeredness that creates suffering. And extending the same wish for happiness and ease and freedom to each other. May you be happy. May you be at ease. May you be free.
outward in all directions, uh, north and south and east and west, above, below, those being born, those dying, all realms of existence. May all beings be at ease. May all beings be free from suffering. And we left off last week with, um, after seven years of struggle, study, practice, dead ends, he finally came to the mindfulness-based solution of understanding the impermanent, impersonal, and unsatisfactory nature of all things, internal and external, and that realization led him to no longer uh, believing his mind and suffering about his thoughts and emotions and, and uh, the ability to meet all of the pain that he experienced internally and externally with compassion and um, non-attachments to the impermanent pleasures and, and this uh, human instinctual drive towards pleasure and craving and attachment. He said, oh, this is not my fault. This is just what the body does. It craves pleasure. It hates pain. This is what the mind does. Taking it personal and obeying it is a recipe for unhappiness. But mindfulness, seeing it clearly and responding wisely, he said, it's ended my suffering and I'm, now I'm free. And, and last week we talked about that epic battle with Mara. Mara, that part of our mind that is invested in our own suffering, that judges and compares and resents and craves. That, you know, that very human, natural, normal, dysfunctional, unskillful part of the human mind. He said, I battled with it and, and I won. I saw through it. I, I learned to not take it personal. I learned to, and then Mara, even after enlightenment, attacks more. And as I said last week, the Buddha seemed to have been like a little bit surprised. He thought like, I'm fully enlightened. Now my mind is going to behave. And his mind was like, nope. 
I'm not going to behave. I'm still going to judge you <laughs> and uh, tell you to feel unworthy. And, and I think that this is so important when we talk about enlightenment, awakening, liberation, to remember that it doesn't mean that your mind is perfect, perfected. It doesn't mean that you don't have afflictive emotions. It doesn't mean that the Buddha didn't continue to have a judging, critical, desirous human body and mind. Because often, I know for me, I think of a, a Buddha, if I didn't know that, I would think, oh, no, no, he's like totally content and his mind is totally peaceful all of the time. This was not his report. His report was, I'm totally free from suffering, but I still have to contend with a human mind that has human mind habits. Mara continues to be an asshole, that part of our mind that's unkind. He said, but now I just meet it with kindness towards the unkind part of my mind. Now I just meet it with wisdom towards the unwise part towards Mara. He says, I see you, Mara turning towards your own difficult, afflictive emotions and just saying, I see you, I'm awake to this tendency of mind and I'm not suffering about it anymore. So he goes, he, you know, he, he has his um, reflections, his, his hesitance to teach. He finally is convinced, okay, I'll, I'll see if I can explain this to people. And, um, and he thinks I'll go find the, he, he had spent years practicing asceticism, this intense, extra intense self-denial, self-mortification, homeless, living in the jungle for years. Uh, and he had five homies that he was mostly with. There was this small group uh, of uh, guys that he was practicing with in the, in the jungle. And they had shunned him because he had given up on the extreme renunciation. He had started eating food. And, and so they were like, you know, you're a fucking sellout. Fucking yogurt eating sellout. You don't even fast. And so they had bounced. And then he'd been alone for some weeks and months and come to these realizations. And he thought, well, if anybody, he's like, they're so sincere, these monks, these celibate, ascetic, he, they're so sincere. Uh, if anybody's going to get it, if I can explain it to anyone, I, I know these uh, people's hearts and minds. And even though they think that I've sold out, uh, let me find them. And he realized that they had gone from Bodhgaya to um, uh, Saranath, which is Varanasi, outside of Varanasi in India. And he, so he, he started walking and he was just like, I'm going to walk and, and go find my homies. I don't know exactly the distance, but it's some day's walk that he had to, to walk there. Um, my sense is it's about the distance of LA to San Francisco. Um, Cause I've, the train, it's like a, like a 10 hour, 12 hour train ride. I've done that before. And then I've also flown and I think it was like an hour and a half flight. So I, my sense is it's like walking from LA to San Francisco. It's like, I'm just gonna walk up there and find my homies. And so he's walking and he doesn't, he's, and he's sort of reflecting on like, how am I going to teach this? And last week I told you that the first thing that occurred to him was there was these five stages of his 
practice. He said, first I had confidence it was possible. And then I put in the work. I did all of the effort. I discovered mindfulness. Mindfulness was key. And then I had learned concentration. And so the combination of mindfulness and being able to concentrate the mind led to this wisdom, the wisdom to respond wisely to what is, to what's happening. So he said, okay, there's these five qualities. Uh, how am I going to put that? How am I going to formulate that? And he had these days to walk and reflect. And uh, my, that's, that's the way I hear it or think about it. It's not like the four noble truths were just, he's like, how am I going to fucking teach this? And he's, it was just a baby Buddha, brand new Buddha. I guess he was 34 years old. He left home. I think, I think it says that he left home when he was about 27. And there were seven years on the streets in the jungle. So he's like 30, early 30s, mid 30s. And he's a fully awakened being. Can you imagine if you were like fully enlightened at 34? Be pretty rad. When I was in my 20s, I was like, yeah, I'm going to get there by my 30s doing all kinds of retreats, thinking like, fucking, if I just meditate more, harder and faster. Still waiting. 30 years later. Um, so he goes and he finds his homies and, and they totally diss him. He finally finds them and he walks up and they're like, oh, here comes like the sellout Siddhartha the kook, the poser, the fucking yogurt eater is coming. Nobody greet him. Don't talk to him. Dude is not spiritual at all. We saw him talking to chicks, eating yogurt. <laughs> he gave up on the real spiritual path. And these guys were like, you know, you don't like, uh, you don't eat food. You fast, you practice austerities. He's just been like sitting and walking and taking naps and fucking eating food and all kinds of disgusting things. And so their initial is like, let's not even listen to him. And he kind of, you know, like, hey guys, like I figured some shit out that you guys want to know about. And he was all vibrant and, you know, healthy and, happy and eventually his homies were like all right let's see let's see what the sellout has to say let's let's give him a shot you know it's our friend let's listen to him and so they gather around and you know they're in saranath and it's this it's called the deer park and so it's like this kind of uh, you know wooded um area where uh deers i guess you know like deers are hanging out it's called the deer park and um and so they gather around and siddhartha says okay check it out he said i i figured it out i am fully enlightened i have reached the deathless the goal that we together have been looking for the end of suffering i experienced it and um and I figured out that it is a path that is uh, a, a, a path of balance, that we were imbalanced. Our practice of asceticism was too extreme. He said, I found this middle path 
that leads between these two extremes. One extreme is this, this dead end of asceticism and he's just dissing them. You know, he's just telling them like the shit that you guys are still doing and that I used to do. You ever be like that with your friends where you're like, I know you're still playing Fortnite, but <laughs> fucking this other game is way better. Like, I don't know video games, but um, I know you're still, you know, going to the gym, but you should really be doing, you know, something else. Um, so he's just dissing him. He's just like, you know, th that is a dead end of this kind of asceticism, self-mortification, this indulgence in pain and self-denial. Well, not it's, it's imbalanced. It's too extreme. He said in this other extreme, he said, we were right about that, having rejected the extreme of um, sense pleasures and materialism. Also a total dead end. There's no happiness and material sensual indulgence that's not going to lead to freedom um, and this other self-mortification and and there's also a little bit of a critique on religion he's like this blind faith in religion is not going to lead you to awakening and this blind faith in materialism is also obviously not going to lead you to awakening or any true happiness This middle path, he said, I found this middle path. And it consists of four noble truths. And the, the way to walk this middle path, there's an eightfold path, four noble truths that we can apply, that anyone can apply. And it will lead to the end of suffering, to the deathless, to nirvana, to liberation. You will get as free as is possible to be if you sincerely adhere to these four truths and say full path. So they're like, okay, we're listening. And they, you know, the light bulbs started to go on. They're like, well, he seems like something is different about Sid. Like uh, he's, he's changed and he's, he's giving a, a compelling argument and they're listening and, um, And our own experience has shown us that we've been doing this ascetic practice and it's not working very you well. You gotta know his background. He's a big. He's a big something. <laughs> He's a big jerk. Um, <laughs> he says the first thing it's just this normalization of how difficult life is and how uh, much, and he uses the term dukkha. The first noble truth is the, the dukkha of, of existence is universal, is uh, ordinary, is something that all living beings experience. And we tend to trans, um, uh, translate dukkha in as suffering. And so the first noble truth is the truth of suffering, the truth that suffering is normal. And, um, and I guess suffering is a, 
the best translation that we can get, but I like the uh, Pali word dukkha because it sounds just dukkha. <laughs> it's fucking dukkha. All of it is dukkha. I don't mean, maybe it's, you know, because I know what the word means, but maybe, and maybe because it sounds like dookie or it's like, it's shit. This is fucking shit. Existence. And not all of it is dukkha and not all of it is shit and not all of it is suffering. But that there's some amount of shit that is unavoidable, some amount of dukkha, some amount of suffering that is just completely and totally ordinary and inescapable by unenlightened beings. And he goes down to, to break it down. And I don't want to go too much into this because next week I'll, we'll go thoroughly into the first noble truth. But he says, you know, there's all of this suffering and sickness and aging and death, the, the reality of impermanence and, and these two core ways that we all suffer by losing that which we want to keep because everything's impermanent and we don't get to keep anything or anyone or any experience. And so everyone suffers about this clinging uh, to the impermanent things and being separated from that which you love. And, every, and th these guys are all like, yeah, I've experienced, as you guys, all of us are like, yeah, that's true. How many, who has not suffered about loss? Whether it's big losses, deaths, or breakups, or uh, material things that you've lost, or uh, everyone, every single one of us has been like, fuck, I've, I wish that didn't end. I wish I could have kept that experience or that thing or that uh, youth, my youth. Where's my fucking youth? <laughs> Lost it somewhere in the 1980s. <laughs> I can't find it. If you have a question, I'll, I'll come around to it. Um, He said, so all of the loss makes it, you know, we all suffer about that. He said, and then there's all of these experiences that we're met with, unpleasant experiences that we do not want to experience, that we resist, the physical pain, the emotional pain, the challenges and challenging relationships. And so like we're met with experiences we don't want to have and we suffer about it and all of the unpleasant Daily, you know, and how many unpleasant experiences did you have today? Did you have any, uh, you know, stuck in traffic or difficulties at work or annoying humans around you or, um, or your own fucking mind annoying you, judging and Mara, how, how, you know, how was, how was Mara in your head today? And it's just like, oh, I don't want to think that. I don't want to feel this. Or even just sitting in meditation tonight. I don't want my knee to hurt. I want to be comfortable. I don't want my ass to hurt. I don't want to have this experience that I'm having right now because it's not fun. I want to have fun all the time or at least be comfortable if it's not fun. And there's just so much discomfort, sound, smell, taste, thought, feeling. We suffer about it because we're not very good at accepting it. We're not very good at meeting it with compassion. So he just normalizes it. And I love this. I love that. I think it was one of the hooks for me in Buddhism. Because it's saying suffering is normal 
And it's saying it's not your fault. Later, it tells you that it's actually your fault, but it starts, <laughs> it starts by saying it's not your fault. Later, it says like, look, actually, if you're mindful enough, you don't have to suffer. So be more mindful because you know, it's your fault you're not being mindful enough. Now that you know how to be mindful, it's your fault <laughs> that you're not meeting it. You know, but like, there's also all of that humility of like, we'll get there. But first just normalizes it. And there's no, you know, Buddhism, unlike Judeo-Christian monotheistic mythology religions who put all this blame on like humans, you're born into sin and, you know, you're bad. Not you're suffering, but like you're kind of, humanity is rotten. And it's because you're immoral and you're sinful and puts all of this judge. Buddhism doesn't do any of that. It just says like, yeah, it's fucking hard, isn't it? It's hard to have a mind and a body and live in this world of impermanence and have all of this pain and, and impermanent pleasures. And it just normalizes. It just says you suffer because it's hard, not because it's your fault and you're bad and, you know, you were kicked out of the Garden of Eden or any of that shit. It's just like, it's just hard. So I love that personally. It's normalizing. It's non-judgmental. It's the Dharma. It's the truth. And so the ascetics are like, okay, makes sense. I'm feeling you. He says, second noble truth, the cause of suffering has its roots in this totally impersonal, normal human survival instinct that manifests as repetitive craving. We live in this world of impermanence, this mind, this body, but we're constantly craving. And it's not just like a craving here and there, repetitive. I wish it were different than it is. More comfortable, less painful, easier, more pleasurable, more pleasurable, more pleasurable, more pleasurable. And that this craving manifests as in three ways, mostly for sense pleasures. I wish this felt better than it feels. And we, even when it feels good, you have you, how many times have you been in the midst of craving while satisfying your craving? I really wanted to get that. Now that I got it, I want it to last. I want more. And the craving just, neuroscience calls this the hedonic treadmill, where when in hedonism and satisfying our desires, you just go around and around. As soon as you satisfy one, you're like, whoop, I need more. How about another one? And most of you are addicts, so you know exactly on an extreme level what that is like. But the Buddha is saying, this isn't for addicts. This is the human condition, that all human beings are addicted to pleasure. And that because we're addicted to pleasure, we suffer when it's not pleasant enough or when the pleasure is impermanent or when it's painful. Repetitive craving for sense pleasures, thoughts, feelings, sensations, experiences, stuff. Our whole material world is just this magnified example of the human condition of like, I could hope maybe I could buy it. Something that will make me happy. Some 
thing that will lead, you know, some pleasurable material experience or The other two ways that the second noble truth uh, he explains to them manifests is um, the craving for sense pleasures and then the craving for permanence. And not only permanent experience, but like a permanent uh, eternal existence, permanent existence, eternalism. And this idea that Hinduism has and Judeo-Christian Islamic monotheism has of you are an eternal soul and you've existed forever and you will always exist and you will never really die. And the Buddha says that also is a way that people suffer, this clinging to, I want to exist forever. So let's make up a heaven that lasts forever. Let's make up these afterlifes where it lasts forever, which is pretty good if you get into heaven, but eternalism in hell sucks. You have to go there forever. And so the Buddha is also critiquing these eternalist philosophies and, and, and saying like, it's not even true, but people suffer so much about believing and wanting to exist forever, whether it's, you know, kind of fountain of youth. I want to, stay young forever, or it's, um, I want to die even after death. I'm going to live forever in the afterlife and be uh, rejoined with all of my loved ones and all of these ideas that we've come up with to comfort ourselves. The Buddha says that craving for eternalism is a form of suffering. You're going to be really disappointed when that doesn't happen because everything is impermanent universal law in permanence, not eternalism. He said, and then the flip side of that is nihilism, is that I don't want to exist at all. And the suicidal ideation uh, experience of like, I just want to fucking end it. The dukkha is too much. The craving is such powerful. I crave non-existence. So sometimes we're in the, I want sense pleasures. I'm here. I want to, sometimes we're in the, I want to live forever. And sometimes we're in, I don't want to fucking exist at all. He said also that nihilistic materialist view of existence, that craving for, I'm just going to end it. And whether it's suicide or it's just you die and then you realize, fuck, it didn't work. What a bummer. Right? I mean, I was very suicidal the first half of my life. And what a fucking drag to kill yourself and then be like, it didn't work. I was really hoping for some relief. And I'm bringing all of my karma with me. Yeah, I got rid of this mind, but I still have this karmic momentum that I own. And so it's not so much the I and the me that is, but something, some energetic karma, according to the Buddha, continues. So he said, all of this is revealed in my awakening. And there's the suffering and there's the cause of suffering. He said, and here's the good news. Finally, get to the good news. He said, it's possible as he, he said, I did it myself. And I assure you that it wasn't special or magic, that it's possible to have such a radical change in our relationship to impermanence 
in our relationship to pleasure and pain and our relationship to the mind, to the self create the mind that creates the I, me, mind. It's possible to be totally free in this lifetime, not in heaven, not in some next life, not, uh, but here and now with this mind that we have, with this fried nervous system and traumatized memories that we're carrying, you can change your relationship to it so radically that you forgive yourself and everyone else, that you uh, have compassion for all of the pain, internal and external, that you don't cling to the impermanent, pleasant experiences. And it's not that you don't have any desires. Of course, you still want to be comfortable and successful and in a loving relationship, all of that stuff continues, but that you're not addicted to it. You're not uh, holding, getting what you want hostage for your, you know, your happiness postponed until you get what you want. You're like, I want it, but also be just fine right now, just like this. Not the end of desire, the end of the, and this is, I think, key. And just think about it for a moment. What's the difference between desire, wanting, and craving, having to have in your direct experience? Sometimes you you want something, but you're not suffering about wanting it. Sometimes you crave something so much that you're like, I'm fucking miserable. I'm just unhappy until I get it. I think I need it to be okay. Didn't you? Oh, yeah. I, thought, um, I think of, like, desire as um, more positive because, like, you can desire for, like, your loved ones to be happy. But to say, like, oh, I crave you to be happy. Kind of sounds- I need you to be. Yeah. That's codependency. <laughs> right? So just thinking, you know, I think that, again, these are important distinctions. If we're talking about what does it mean to, what's the third noble truth? He's saying it's possible. It has to be realistic. It's not the end. It's not a fucking lobotomy. You don't get rid of your afflictive emotions. You don't get rid of your mind and your memory and your desire system. But he said you can change your relationship to it so radically that you can be at peace in the midst of life on life's terms you can be at peace at ease well you still want but you don't have to have you still don't like being uncomfortable but you're very tolerant and friendly towards discomfort you're at ease in the midst of it you don't love it but just because your nervous system's like hey that's is my knee okay my back okay Is this going to cause an injury, right? So there's still all of those thoughts and feelings. That shit doesn't go away. Suffering, the cause of suffering, the end of suffering. And then the Eightfold Path. Here's how we do it. It's possible. How do we get there? Eight factors. You can break the Eightfold Path is understanding reality as it is, having wise intentions, having um, careful speech, right speech, wise speech, 
careful actions, uh, wise actions, right actions, uh, right livelihood, uh, a, a, a way of, and, and this is where it's like, although the Buddha at this time is talking to these renunciates, he outlines it for householders, right? Because the monks don't have jobs, but he's saying like, look, if you're going to have a job, you got to have a job that's not creating negative karma for you. Right, right livelihood. You can't, you know, because you don't want to be somebody who's like, well, I meditate my ass off every day, all day, but I lie at work and create all this negative karma for me, or I steal, or I kill, or I create negative karma in my employment. Right livelihood, right effort. And remember the first thing he said, first I had confidence, effort. He said this path goes against the stream, against greed, against hatred, against delusion, against the norms of all societies of all times. And in order to go against, it's going to take effort. We're going against our own survival instinct. It's the survival instinct that causes suffering. It's the second noble truth. He said, this is going to take, the word, the Buddhist word for the sixth factor of the path is uh, wirya, and it, tra it translates as something like um, um, a vigorous effort. And so you can think about your spiritual practice and how vigorous it feels. Last week, we talked about um, if you look at your effort on a scale of one to 10, and you know, 10 is like vigorous. Like I practice the five precepts to the best of my ability all of the time. I meditate daily. I go on retreats. I, I'm of service. I, you know, practice generosity. I, I engage. I, I do it in a vigorous way. I'm careful with my speech. I'm mindful of my actions. I've renounced violence and theft and misconduct. And, and so he's saying like, this is going to take a lot of effort. It's a factor on the path, putting in a lot of effort, not a casual sort of like, yeah, you know, listen to your meditation app for seven minutes. Mm -hmm. It's like, you're going to have to put in the fucking work if you want to get free. You can, but it's going to take a lot of work. And then the eighth factor, mindfulness and concentration. Uh, eighth, uh, seventh factor, mindfulness. Eighth factor, concentration, meditation. So you can break the eightfold path into three sections, uh, wisdom, ethics, and um, meditation. Sila, samadhi, panya. Sila means uh, ethics, samadhi, meditation, term that we use for meditation, and panya, wisdom. And so the first two factors, Developing understanding and intention. This is wisdom, the intent, wise intentions, wise understanding. Sila, renunciation of uh, dishonor, the five precepts, dishonesty and theft and uh, sexual misconduct. And part of sila, part of the ethical framework of the Buddha's teachings is sobriety. In order to truly be mindful and walk this path of awakening, there's no room for intoxication, recreational. Uh, as soon as you take a drink and you get high, you no longer have the ability to be mindful. This is a mindfulness-based solution. And so we have to stay mindful. We've got to stay present. 
And um, so a, a strong encouragement from the Buddha in the five precepts to say, like, you want to do this shit, you're going to need to be sober to do this shit all the time, even on the weekends, <laughs> even at your aunt's wedding, just refrain. That was, you know, that was his teaching. Um, and meditation, we have, you know, effort often, effort applies to everything. It takes effort to understand for intention, for right speech, for right action, for right livelihood. It all takes effort, effort into meditation. To train the mind, to tame the monkey mind takes effort. To concentrate, and some of you suffer from ADD, ADHD, and you feel like, I can't fucking concentrate very well. Uh, and that's okay. But if you keep coming back to the present, keep putting the effort in, you don't have to be single pointed in order to do mindfulness, but you have to keep coming, keep returning, keep, you know, keep connecting with the present time experience. He gave the Vipassana instructions in the Eightfold Path. He said, there are four foundations of mindfulness. First foundation is the body. Second foundation is the feeling tone, that everything that we experience in this mind, body, heart, human experience is perceived as either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, and that almost all of our suffering is about the pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. Craving for the pleasant, clinging to the pleasant, aversion, resistance to the un unpleasant. So you have to bring mindfulness, not just mindfulness of breathing, mindfulness to the feeling tone, to what your heart and mind are feeling. That's where the suffering is created. Mindfulness of the mind, uh, often people, uh, you know, in sort of modern Western mindfulness um, are just being mindful of the body and doing yoga and, you know, uh, exercising and, and, you know, really focused on the physical. Um, but the Buddha said, no, no, you have to observe your mind, sit here and turn towards your mind and see the impermanent, impersonal nature of your own thinking mind. And that every thought is experienced as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. He said, concentration, the eighth factor. He said, this is a, a good skill. He said, I learned this in the ashram with my old teachers. He's like, concentration will get you fucking blissed out. You get to, you know, you get super concentrated. You ignore everything. It's a good skill as long as it's joined with mindfulness. Concentration by itself won't work, but I'm going to include it here on the Eightfold Path, because it will support your mindfulness if you're good at concentrating. Like I said before, you don't have to be good at concentrating, but it's part of the path, trying to focus on task at hand. So he gave this talk to his five homies, and they said, that should make sense. Thank you. Thanks for breaking it down for us. And um, we're in. This sounds way better. And you can eat yogurt. We're, we're in. <laughs> Fucking totally in. 
this middle path. Now, they had been in this extreme, and they said, okay, we're in for this middle path. Now, as the Buddha broke down the middle path, he says, yeah, we can eat food once a day. And these guys were like, we fast for weeks. We don't, you know, like we're, we're big on fasting. He's like, we can eat. We'll, we'll be balanced. Our middle path, no food after midday. For us monastics, we'll maintain celibacy. Let's never have sex again. No masturbation, no sexual contact. And he considered this balanced. You know, for most of us, we're so engaged in sense pleasures. Like that sounds kind of extreme. No dinner and no jacking off. I'm out. <laughs> for householders, he said no sexual misconduct. He said, you know, you can have sex, have all the sex you want. Bring mindfulness to sex. Bring wise communication to sex. Bring your full heart and awareness and compassion and the understanding of impermanence. Bring it to sex. Almost in a kind of tantric uh, awareness of your sexuality and your desire. So you don't have to maintain. The monks, we're going to nuns, monastics, if you want to do this path, abstinence, celibacy. But for householders, you're going to be sexual. Make it part of your awareness practice. All of it. It's all in there for tonight. There were then six Buddhists in the world. There was the Buddha and his five first students. And um, next week, I'll talk about uh, the next two groups of people that he met, a, a group of uh, merchants, uh, children from, from Vanaras, and then the fire worshipers and the fire sermon. And we'll talk about those in the next couple of weeks. Oh, no, no. First, I'll, first I'm going to break down the Eightfold Path in more detail in the next few weeks, and then we'll go on to uh, where he went from there to, uh, in his travels. You had a, you're standing, you had a question that I didn't get to. Is it still relevant? Yeah, I was, well, basically, are you saying because we do have attachment to things, that's how we suffer? It's one of the main ways that we suffer. How do you, I mean, I am suffering. Yeah. And um, how do we How do we let go? Um, mindfulness, what we're doing is we turn towards the, it's, it's the impermanence, which is both the problem and the solution. The reason attachment hurts is because everything's impermanent. We're attached to impermanent things. The more we turn towards that, mindfulness reveals it, not just in like an intellectual knowledge way, but we start to see, oh, everything's really, I can't hold on to anything. Well, one of my teachers used the image of um, attachment because everything's impermanent. He said, it's like a, um, like there's a tug of war, like a rope and you're playing like tug of war with reality, with the universe, whatever you want to call it. And there's, you just can't hold, you know, it's always going to be pulled beyond your grasp. And so you're just giving yourself rope burns. It seems like we don't know that that's not like, common knowledge. Like we don't really know that. And we're wired to cling. 
It's the meditation, the mindfulness, the turning towards the truth of impermanence that starts to rewire and recalibrate uh, our relationship. It doesn't make it, um, it doesn't make loss and grief totally painless. There's still a healthy form of grief with loss, um, but not that extra level of I'm holding on to something that is impossible to keep. We understand the reality. So meditation, the solution is meditation, and especially with the focus on anicca, impermanence. And you have, to, you have to meditate your way there. You know, there's that saying of like, you can't think your way to this sort of spiritual awakening. You have to act. You have to do the meditation practice that then will reveal the ability to live more and more in harmony with the truth of impermanence. Yeah, hopefully that's, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. We're just about out of time. Yeah, last comment or question. Yeah, you're talking about um, the Buddha at one time was critiquing, you know, Christian faith, like, you know, the people want Well, Christianity to... didn't exist yet. Oh, okay. This is 600 years before Christianity. But so I'm I'm lumping etern Christian eternalist philosophy in, but it wasn't there yet. Okay, um, but like talking about like, you know, people want to believe in heaven because of the permanent yeah. forever. Yeah. Um, you know, did he critique reincarnation? And if he did, um, like, what would be his critique for that of yeah. like, why people want to believe in reincarnation? Um, it was in there that the in eternalists, uh, most of the Brahmanic Hindus of his time and, and this time um, have reincarnation as this never ending cycle. And he was also saying that's not how it works, actually. Uh, you have karma that you're going to play out. But when you finish your karma, you don't keep coming back. And you don't go live in some heaven. Nirvana is an extinguishing. It's the deathless, this term, the deathless, where you don't have to keep coming back. And so there's this simplified version of, of Buddhism, which says you have to, you keep reincarnating, you keep coming back until you get done with your karma. But then once you're done, you don't take birth again. And the Hindus were kind of saying like, no, no, you go forever. Then you kind of join with Brahma. And he was like, no, it's not forever. You, it's only until you free yourself from greed, hatred, and delusion. And then you have extinguished rebirth. So it's a little bit different than the Hindu or the Judeo-Christian eternalists views around afterlife or rebirth. Okay. Yeah. What's that term? Death Deathless. Deathless. Deathless, that which does not, is no longer subject to death. That's nirvana. Yeah, it's one of the words for enlightenment. You've experienced the deathless. You've exhausted rebirth. I like it. Deathless. It sounds <laughs> punk. It's like a good, actually, my friend named his, his Buddhist punk band, the Deathless. Pretty good. It's available on SoundCloud. And <laughs> yeah, when you reach Nirvana, it's, it's one of the, um, I was looking at the traditional in the Sutta, when he comes and he finds his homies, he says, I've reached the deathless. Nirvana, awakening, liberation. They're all synonymous. 
Oh, there's um, four, maybe we'll get in, it's over time, so we'll get into this next time. Uh, there are four levels of enlightenment. Uh, stream entry, non once returner, non-returner, arahant. The arahants are the ones that are deathless. One re once returner, you have one more incarnation left. Uh, non-returner, you have to live out the karma of the body in this lifetime. Uh, stream entry, seven incarnations left. You're getting, you're getting close, getting close to stream entry. I should start like passing out enlightenment certificates. Like you're, you're a stream enter. You're a stream enter. And yeah, if, if you're a monthly supporter of against the stream, you can be a stream enter with only seven incarnations left. Let's get culty in here. You're super weird. Okay. Make it multi-tiered, Noah. Multi-tiered, yeah. The more you give, the more easier enlightenment will be for you. Now I can't even ask for donations. I ruined it. Class is done by donations. Against the Stream is supported by your generosity. Um, there's a bowl for in-person cash donations if you have them. There's a Venmo, probably the easiest way for most people, Venmo, PayPal. You can go onto the website and donate that way. Um, there's links in the um, chat for the people at home. Please be generous. So our overhead is $3,500 for rent and then some salaries and, you know, fucking electricity on this place and, you know, the building is hundreds of dollars every month, and it's all supported by the community. So um, obviously I have been teaching this class for donations for 17 years now, and uh, your donations support this class continuing. And all the people that came before you supported it to be open today, and it will continue based on, on the continued support. So no enlightenment certificates for anybody, but please be generous. It is good you know, for us to, to be generous and, and develop that karmic momentum and merit and um, a couple of announcements. The Memorial Day retreat is open for registration, three-day silent retreat, Joshua Tree, Memorial Day weekend. Um, I think it's probably going to be the last time I teach at the memorial at the Joshua Tree Retreat Center. They have um, raised their prices to the point where I'm feeling like it's not really fair to our community to charge that much for retreats. I really want retreats to be affordable and getting to the place where it's less and less affordable for some of the people in our community who don't have that much money. So I'm looking for more affordable op uh, options found a place up in Big Bear that I scheduled a couple of retreats at this year that's more like a summer camp place, um, but it, you know, it's cheap. So I feel like uh, I want our community to be able to do retreats for a few hundred dollars rather than you know, going on a couple thousand dollars because the retreat center charges so much money. So come to the last memorial, the last Joshua Tree retreat. I've been teaching out there for 15 years. So it's sort of sad, you know, impermanent. Sort of sad to let go of that retreat center, but they're pricing us out. They said, fuck you, Buddhists. Yoga people pay top dollar. <laughs> we don't care if you've been coming here for 15 years or not. Um, 
So uh, onward, upward. And then I have another day long in April. I hope many of y'all, we have plenty of time to announce that, but I hope that some of you will come to that. So many merit that comes from our practice be gathered and shared outward in all directions. May each of us get as free as possible in this lifetime. And together, may we create a positive change on this planet. Good to see everybody. See you next week for more suffering. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream and Refuge Recovery. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.